0: That's really what this anxiety is. This is obsessive compulsive behavior. So you can see people, for example, they've got no notification on their phone, but just obsessively, they pull it out of their pocket, press a button just to see what might have been there that they didn't get a notification for. Then they put it back in their pocket and pick it up again, put it back and pick it up again, even though it hasn't buzzed.
1: Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Glow Podcast. Do you ever wonder how the screens we look at all day might be making changes to the way we think behave and feel this episode of the globe podcast features a conversation with dr larry rosen a scientist and researcher who is an expert on the psychology of technology dr rosen assured me that he is an optimist but he tells a story of being concerned about our ever-increasing dependency on our screens we get into how this habit is affecting our cognitive ability We discuss multitasking and how bad we are at it, why it's unhealthy, by connecting the dots between our use of devices and our stress levels. We also get into how our phones and other communication technologies give us the illusion of having more and more ways of connecting, but Dr. Rosen argues you're not genuinely communicating through many of these electronic means. He also offers a simple solution and much more, which you'll want to stick around for. He also shares his personal experiences after being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rosen. Dr. Rosen, hi, thank you for being here with us. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm so excited about this conversation. You've been studying the psychology of technology since the 1980s and you're recognized as an international expert in your field. You've been interviewed by Katie Couric, Anderson Cooper, among many others. You most recently co-authored a book called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. And part of why I'm extremely interested in speaking with you is that you're not anti-technology, but rather you position the challenge us humans face, meaning we've all opted into this grand experiment, of which I'm, I'm sure you'll get into, And you position that challenge and opportunity in terms of how we can better equip ourselves with a a solid understanding of how our brain and mind function so that we can practice being more mindful of both the conscious and the unconscious forces that are just constantly at play as we interact with technology and in so doing exercise our self-awareness muscles to ultimately develop a, a healthy relationship with technology and I want to get into uh, some of the points in your most recent book, but first, can you share with us some of your background and were there any key findings or insights along the way that led you to what, to me, seems to be a passion of yours, that as we interact with technology through conscious effort and behavior modification, we can experience more agency and improved psychological and physiological health.
0: Yeah, so so I started looking at the psychology technology in 1984, and uh, basically doing just research study after research study after research study. We set up a clinic. Um, we called it the com- Computer phobia, phobia Reduction Plan or something like that, which unfortunately had a bad acronym, um, so it never got got around. But what we, what I learned along the way is that in the beginning, in the 80s, people were scared to death of technology. Um, They called it computer phobia. Uh, And as we moved kind of further on into technology, they called it technophobia because then we had other technologies like VCRs, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And along the way, I think what has happened is I've gotten a, a clearer picture of what is going on. And by the time we got to the 90s, um, I thought I had it wired. Um, I was doing research on video game playing. I was doing research on online dating, uh, just a whole slew of topics that just seemed interesting. And then smartphones hit. And then social media hit. And both of those just changed the world enormously. And I realized that that since I feel like I'm supposed to be studying important topics, that I had to switch everything I was doing. I, I just shut down all the projects that we were doing and moved on to looking specifically at what people are doing with their smartphones and what they're doing with social media, and then how that interacts with their uh, college performance. If they're in college, with their work performance, with their anxiety, with their stress, with their depression, all of this. And I've been doing that for the last, I don't know, maybe six, seven years.
1: Got it. So let's move into the book. I think it might help to start off with the, The model that you use throughout the book the optimal foraging model and you say somewhere towards the end of the book or maybe two-thirds into it that we are inherently information-seeking creatures who forage for information resources similar to how our ancient ancestors foraged for food and you introduce that model and you use it to consider how our ancient ancestors develop certain cognitive abilities that ultimately help them survive and that some of those abilities are now limitations in fact. And you know, why you know, it's helpful, it was helpful for me at least to think of how we interact with technology in terms of this model. And you know, it might be helpful also at this point to introduce some terms like cognitive control, top-down, bottom-up processing. I'm a visual learner, so it was really helpful for me to actually see the model uh, throughout the, the book. But I'm, I'm curious how you would convey that here through this audio format.
0: So what, what was interesting is Adam Ghazali, who is my co-author, um, who's an MD, PhD, neurologist um, in San Francisco and is brilliant beyond belief, um, had thought of this model. And he'd gotten it from some of the early research on animal foraging because he'd done some animal research, too. And we looked at it and we talked at length about what this might mean in terms of technology. Um, rather than and then talking about rather than foraging for information, which I still don't believe we're doing, unless you change the definition of information, I think what we're doing is we're foraging for closeness, for connectedness, uh, for communication purposes. Uh, and the reason I say that, by the way, is that we've been looking at people's uh, screen time, their their iPhone screen times, and looking at how much time they spend each week on various apps and which apps they first go to and and where they get notifications. And it's all communication. It's all communication. It's all social media. It's all uh, messaging. It's all email. It's all anything. And so the idea is in the foraging model is that an optimal forager, like a squirrel, say would go up a tree, start eating acorns. And and when it got, the acorns started to get low, the squirrel's looking around trying to figure out where he's going to go next. And, the idea is then he runs out or close to runs out and runs across, gets up another tree, starts eating there and back and forth. And that's, that's kind of optimal foraging um, for the squirrel. However, part of the problem for us is that we have those little acorns are really just um, information, communication. Um, and we're never optimal. Um, and, and part of why we're never optimal, by the way, is because we're easily distracted <laughs> and But also part of why we're not there yet, um, we can blame, we can share the blame. I can blame half of it on us, on our personal psychology, but half of them, half of it on technology companies too, because their goal is to get you there. And your goal as the squirrel is to try to get you to consume as much as you can there before moving on to someplace else. Well, we always talk about, you know, with technology now, there's always something shiny waving out there at you that you need to need to look at. And, and we've even confirmed this. We've had people look at their phones and tell us what all the apps are on the front screen. And they're almost all communication, te- uh, social media. We look at their notifications. They're getting notifications all day long from social media and
1: communication.
0: So it seems like we're just bad, bad squirrels.
1: <laughs> bad squirrels. I love the repositioning or reframing it in terms of forging for connection. Can you speak more to that? Like what are, I mean, there's so much that I want to cover in, in our conversation together. And you know, we can come back to, you mentioned behavioral science and how that's being leveraged in terms of uh, you know, optimizing for uh, attention across many of the services that we use. But maybe let's stay for a moment in, in, in some of the fundamentals before we go more macro And I think one thing that I was surprised to consider was that the, uh, difference between enhancement and suppression that as we're focusing on a particular goal or task, the suppression of irrelevant information is just as important and correct me if I'm wrong, takes up as much sort of processing power as the focusing on the relevant information.
0: I actually think it takes up more processing power.
1: That's my personal experience as well, but
0: yeah. <laughs> well, because we're we're trying to suppress everything that's on our minds at the moment. And what's on our minds at the moment is technology. I mean, I was just reading this morning, um, I, I'm an avid newsreader, and I was reading this morning that kids and adults both increase their screen time by 50% during the pandemic, not counting time on work and time on school, meaning they're on a lot. And they're doing a lot of things, and those keep rising to the surface. Like uh, my, like my little nine year old grandson, eight year old grandson, what rises to the sur- surface is, I got to play X game. I mean, it used to be Minecraft, then it was Fortnite, now it's Roblox. I don't doesn't matter, but their brain keeps going. I've got to play it. I've got to play it. I've got to get back to it. And that they have to, in order to to succeed, they have to suppress that and bring it down. Um, it's very difficult. It's a difficult job to suppress those kind of thoughts because they're so omnipresent. And so
1: we're bad squirrels because we're bad at suppression.
0: We are bad at suppression. And in fact, it's not even that we're bad at suppression. We're, we think we shouldn't suppress it because something important might show up.
1: Right. You say somewhere in the book that our ability to ignore goal irrelevant information is so fragile. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of this information that's coming to us is coming via the bottom up processing. Can you expand on that? Sure. Bottom-up
0: processing is just taking in all the data, basically, from the outside world. Um, you process stuff from, from the information you get in and try to build it up and up and up. Top-down is really where you start at the very top and think of like an umbrella above your head that, that is kind of uh, writing over everything you do, everything you think. And so when any information comes in, it goes into that structure and then filters down from there. So it already has kind of a theory, a structure in its head, and it just keeps filtering down. the The bottom up is pretty dangerous sometimes because you don't have a, you don't have a theory, you don't have a a, a a way you normally react, basically. And we're just hit; we're bombarded by it. I mean, it was one of the fascinating things to me is how fast social media has evolved. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's magnificent to watch and scary to watch, but every time we do a study, we have a sequence of questions that we ask. We take the top 10 or 11 social media sites in terms of population, and we ask them how often do you check in on these top 11, you know, the, the, the normal ones. In fact, with the last studies, we've had to include TikTok, which just popped up recently. Um, What we find is the typical millennial or the typical teenager, because we studied both, has an active presence on six or more social media sites. What an active presence means is that you actively use it, use it more than once a day, You, you check in often. And what I've started to see is that people build up this thing called a social obligation because they've got six six or more social media sites because they've got text messages coming in, they feel socially obligated to attack all of them and to be on all of them, which you can't do. It doesn't help you suppress anything. If you're constantly thinking about, wait, I haven't, I haven't gotten onto TikTok and liked my friend's post that he did. And and I haven't gotten to check my snaps on Snapchat. It's, uh, it's gotta be mind boggling. I mean, I, I have presence on maybe four social media sites, but I actively ignore them. Um, Because I really don't care. In a lot of cases, Um, I only keep track of my kids, basically. Uh, But it's got to be a real heavy obligation that's sitting on these kids and millennials' shoulders.
1: Yeah, I feel a lot of compassion for them. I, you know, at forty-seven, and you know, I think of myself as someone having some degree of self-awareness and some degree of of cognitive or executive control. I, I truly cannot authentically say how I would deal or handle what they are faced with in terms of what you're referring to. I I I would probably succumb. Well and
0: it. they've got these young fragile minds too. I mean we're talking about, you know, teenagers basically preteens now, and maybe millennials up until the mid twenties to late twenties. Um they all kind of look like these these kind of Animals running around, going. I got to check this. I got to check that. And it's like losing their mind. And the problem is, is that if you if you look at, say, people um, under mid to late twenties, the the part of the brain that processes information, that attends to information, that does multitasking and things like that, is the prefrontal cortex, right up behind your forehead. The prefrontal cortex handles attention, working memory, impulsivity, multitasking, and shuttles information all over the place. Um, It is not completely finished, cooked, completely cooked um, until you're mid to late 20s at best. So you're dealing with kind of a half a deck here. And particularly as you get younger and younger, you really have no ability to shift your attention logically. You have impulsivity. Um, That's what kids are all about.
1: Yeah, I was surprised to read that. Facebook use, even checking it just once, and I forgot what time period uh, correlated with lower GPA, students who send and receive text messages during class get lower grades. You mentioned that uh, excessive multitasking while learning increases the time to learn as well as stress. Yep, as well as the stress, which is more, I think more important, quite honestly. And even once the, the, the people who were in these studies were given that information and anticipated that they would perform Thirty percent worse, uh, still did, still uh, carried on with that behavior, even though they right. knew they would perform worse. It reminds me of a smoker who's terminally ill and still smoking. <laughs> like, why? Why is multitasking uh, so harmful? Well, if you think of the
0: brain as a as a multitasking vehicle, which it is, and if you think of it in really simplistic terms, I'm going to try to describe this really simply, and then I'll take it higher. Um, the brain has um, a bunch of oxygen. I mean, a bunch of blood flowing through it. Blood carries oxygen and glucose, which are two things that are needed for the neurons to react, for the neurons to function properly. And what what we see is when we look at people, um, what we see is if they're if they're trying to think about something, and we focus them, say, think about such and such. We see the area of their brain, roughly, that is—they call it—lighting up, which is just the neurons being activated and sending, shooting chemicals back and forth between them to form memories, to form uh, ideas, to form whatever. Um, the problem is, is that we get distracted so easily. So imagine that on the right side of your head is where you're talk is where you're thinking about uh, your school project that you have to do, and but on the left side of your head is your participation in TikTok. And so now you're, you're thinking on the right side of your head about what you need to do for the project. All the blood is rushing there, all the oxygenated blood is rushing there, the glucose, all of it's working beautifully. And then all of a sudden you start thinking about TikTok. What that does is it starts moving the blood from where you were to the other side of the brain or to wherever else TikTok ideas are located, meaning that the first task is going to have obviously less blood, less glucose, less oxygen, which dissipates pretty quickly. So the the thing is, is that by the time you're ready to go back and think about your project, you really have to kind of thumb back through it and go, where was I? I've forgotten where I was because you're not having a good placekeeper there. And so you thumb back in your brain, and sometimes you have to go pretty far back and start over again. And so this distraction, the multitasking really affects your your (laughs) stick-to-itiveness, for lack of a better term, your ability to focus for more than a
1: short period of time. This just made me wonder, have there been any studies looking at brain volume or brain connectivity, comparing those who are excessive multitaskers to those who aren't? Like are certain parts of the brain underdeveloped or overdeveloped as a result of excessive multitasking?
0: Not that I'm aware of. Okay. What people do study, interestingly enough, is the chemicals in the brain. And that is pretty easy. The multi- if, you, if you scan somebody's brain in an MRI... It's complicated. It's really complicated. We think a brain is like they show these pictures and you go, well, he's thinking about this over here and he's thinking about this over here. It's not true. It's all through the brain. If you look, it's just a mass of com- connections going all over the brain. It's not simple at all, S- but it's hard to study because of that. Right. But if you study the chemistry of the brain, which is the chemicals are also involved in the transmission from neuron to neuron then you can do it pretty easily, quite honestly. Those chemicals are shown in a saliva test. So for example, if you want to study or know how stressed or anxious somebody is, you can swab them and count the number of cortisol molecules or the number of alpha amylase molecules or all of the molecules that are in the stress and anxiety network. Or if you want to see how, um, how addicted they are, video games, for example, you can also get a saliva test and find the, the amount of dopamine in there, um, amount of serotonin in there. So by chemistry, you can infer what's going on electrically in the brain. Um, and, and you can also do it on a pretty gross level and put an EEG cap on top of somebody's head, which elect modif- monitors the total electrical activity of that area. And um, bottom line is you can see um, it go up and down. That sometimes can
1: be helpful. So it's correct to say that people who are excessive multitaskers or excessive gamers, maybe certain type of, of games, are, are certainly experiencing shifts in their brain biochemistry.
0: Mm-hmm. But so, and somehow sometimes it's good. By the way, I mean if you if you look at these at younger people playing these games, they develop an incredible amount of of fine motor skills. Um, and also a pretty good amount of, of visual tracking. I mean, it, there's never just one beast on the screen. There's mm-hmm. always a whole bunch of people you're killing or shooting at. And, and so you've got to keep track of them all, which is a very important skill that the prefrontal cortex handles. Mm-hmm. And so what you could say is they're kind of developing their prefrontal cortex a little bit, um, but then they destroy it because then they switch back and forth all the time, and that just destroys what whatever they've tried to build up.
1: Okay. So do you specifically use the word destroy as in whatever? No. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not physically destroy it, but what it is is destroy the train of thought that you were trying to follow at the time.
1: I think this might be a good place to unpack anxiety. So you'd mentioned social obligation. And uh, as I was taking notes just now, I wrote anxiety next to it. And you speak to anxiety quite a bit in the book. What role is anxiety playing as as we set out to uh, fulfill our goals, stick to our tasks, and as we try to manage the constant onslaught of information that's coming to us?
0: Okay, so I'm going to take it from two levels. One is the biochemical level, and the other is more the research behavior level. Start with the behavior level because it's much easier to deal with. If you watch people and just stare at them and watch what they're doing. Um, And you give them, say, you make them stare at a screen and look at things. Immediately what they start doing is looking at, um, even looking at icons for social media sites that they use. If you continue to let them do that, they will eventually just be darting back and forth and back and forth from one site to the other. We've, and there's studies doing this showing their eye movements keep bouncing back and forth. Um, if you put a task on the right side of the screen and their home screen on the left from their phone, they will, dart, they will dart back and forth and it will get more and more and more. So what is going on? What is going on is anxiety. What happens is, and then this has been shown in in a variety of places and in a variety of tools, and it's pretty solid research. But if you look at what's going on biochemically, and again, I'm trying to simplify it. Uh, It's not this simple, but I'm going to make it sound simpler. So when you wake up in the morning, your body starts to produce cortisol because cortisol in small amounts wakes you up. Um, You can look outside and see the the blue sky, if you've got blue sky, and the the color blue actually also helps to release more cortisol from you. So as you go through the day, the cortisol ebbs and flows. But if you get into a situation where you start to feel behaviorally stressed, as in saying to yourself, hey, I haven't checked in with uh, TikTok often enough, or, oh, my friend was going to text me something, I got to go check and see if it's there. What happens is the cortisol increases. And the cor- as the cortisol increases, one of the interesting things about cortisol, and this, there's a lot of other chemicals, by the way. It's not just cortisol, but it's easier to talk about this way. The cortisol increases, you start to get bodily responses. Palms sweaty, um, pits wet, stomach growling, brain dead, um, all those things that you feel when you get really anxious. And if you get anxious enough, you get put into what's called a fight or fight reaction which is do I stay and duke it out or do I get the heck out of here? Cortisol building up like that creates an exact model of the anxiety that's going on in your brain. And the only way to get rid of the cortisol is to do what is making you anxious, get it done with. And what we see is if, if we tap into um, brains um, and have them explain to us what they're thinking as they're doing what they're doing, The words that come out of their mouths almost always signal that they're feeling anxious about something that they have forgotten to do, they need to do, they want to remember to do. And every time that happens, they get a little squirt of cortisol, which is more anxiety. So the only thing they can do is do those things, and that reduces the anxiety, reduces the cortisol, sucks it back in. Um, But the problem for people mostly is they keep doing this all day long. And so all day long, we're pumping up the cortisol, we're bringing down the cortisol, we're pumping up the cortisol, we're bringing down the cortisol. That's also not healthy. Excessive cortisol is just not good for you. It's not healthy. It, um, in the long run, it just adds to um, medical problems, mental problems, uh, and, and just is not a good thing to do, which is why you really shouldn't be zipping back and forth from what you're doing to your social media sites, because you have to think in your mind what's compelling you to doing that. And I use the word compelling and obsessing together here, like OCD, obsessive compulsive behavior. That's really what this anxiety is. This is obsessive compulsive behavior. So you can see people, for example, they've got no notification, for example, on their phone, but just obsessively, they pull it out of their pocket, press a button just to see what might have been there that they didn't get a notification for. Then they put it back in their pocket and pick it up again, put it back and pick it up again, even though it hasn't buzzed. Or They might feel that phantom vibration in their pocket and think, oh, there's something coming in, I gotta check it. When all it was was an itch.
1: So essentially we have this constant running of these bottom up information sources coming at us and we have to overlay or or integrate specific tactics throughout the day in order to process that cortisol. Are there any practices that, that you yourself do or that you recommend for others who are maybe just completely unaware of the fact that this dynamic is is playing out for them?
0: So I, uh, first of all, let me say that I'm the worst at this in history. I'm 71 and I still haven't figured out how to coach myself to stop doing this. But I will <laughs> tell you what I have done um, because there is one area that is very important. We have studied the impact of technology on sleep. And one of the things that we know about technology is that the the screens themselves, they may look white, but they're giving off a lot of light in the blue spectrum. Turns out what the blue spectrum does is as the light comes in, it tells the adrenal gland to produce more cortisol. So imagine yourself, it's 1030, 11, 1130, and You've been w- watching TV and second screening at the same time, which everybody does, and now you turn off the TV and you go, i got to check one more time, and oh, beep, an email, and boom, you're off with an email conversation, all the while that the blue light from there is getting into your eyes, is causing this cortisol to increase. Um, so what we do know is, is the more cortisol you have, the worse sleep you get. In fact, we do know what causes that because we've studied it. And we do know that technology plays a pretty big role in that. Um, what we also know is that every national sleep organization recommends, highly recommends, that you get all technology close to your face, out of your room, out of the sleeping area, an hour before bedtime. Why is that? Well, it reduces the tendency to do that, um, reduces the tendency to second screen if you've got nothing to second screen on. I mean, you can do a picture in a picture on your TV, Turns out TV is not much of a problem, by the way. It, yes, it's controlled by LEDs, and yes, it emits blue light, but it's not close to your face unless you're watching something on an iPad or your phone, and then it's very close. But if you're just watching it on your TV, the blue light dissipates pretty quickly and goes basically goes over your shoulders and gone. But the other thing that this does is when it turns on the adrenal gland to produce cortisol, it turns off the pineal gland, which produces melatonin. And melatonin is what we need to go to sleep. So you can imagine there's this interplay between the cortisol and the melatonin, more cortisol, less melatonin, less chance of sleep, or less chance of getting a good night's sleep. And that's what we find is um, people who use technology excessively just get a worse night's sleep. So you started by asking me what I do. At about 11 o'clock, I turn my phone on silent. I put it upside down next to my bed. Um, That's stupid. I know that. But I've learned that it doesn't bother me, um, but I also use it to play some music sometimes if, if it's nice, you know, it's nice music and it's nighttime and you want to hear some music. But I really get rid of that that technology and no other technology in the bedroom at all, just just my smartphone, and I really literally turn it off at, at 11. But why stupid? Um, Because there's a, because of the anxiety again, there's this tendency, you see your phone and it sets off the anxiety just like that. (laughs) And so I try to move my phone to a place that I won't necessarily see it. But if it's something important happens, then I need to know it. And I only allow text messages from my kids um, to ding through that. So it's, you know, one of my kids or my wife or somebody has some troubles, I need to attend to it, whether it's midnight or four in the morning. But other than that, I mean, I don't need to know, you know, what my colleague in New York said and I need to respond to or, you know, what somebody uh, um, is asking me a question about such and such on, online. I don't need to deal with that until the morning. And I do the first thing in the morning, like everybody else. I grab my phone. I deal with my phone before I even I have a new, a new York Times comes on the paper. I don't read it until i have done with my phone. <laughs> in fact, it's the last thing I realize that I do in the morning before uh, before. Getting started for the day, I go through my phone, I read the news, um, I respond to all the emails, I respond to texts. So it's really not a good strategy, quite honestly. (laughs) Um, But it's the best I can do, quite honestly. And and yes, I'm a baby boomer, but boy, I've been raised along with all this technology. I'm a tech geek. And I just know what it does to me personally. And I use a lot of my personal anecdotes, as well as my kids and my grandkids and what they're doing, to kind of stimulate ideas to, to study. Um, And when I started studying video games, for example, one of my kids was just heavy into video games. And so it just seemed natural to look at what the effect was of doing that. As I study more and more things, I find my kids have bad night's sleep. I talk to them about it. I try not to preach to them, but I talk to them about it. Um, So it kind of, all these studies emanate from that. And where the sleep study emanated was I was having crappy sleep. I just was, I was waking up all the time and I just didn't understand it. And I was looking at my phone. I was second screening all the time. I'm looking at my phone, and yeah, I realized that I was looking at it too much at night, late at night, and it was not keeping me awake. I'm able able to fall asleep. I'm sitting up, watching TV, listening to music, doesn't matter. I could crash out no matter what, but I was not able to stay asleep. I was waking up at 3 in the morning every night with anxiety just buzzing through my ears, things I needed to remember, things I forgot. And yeah, you're supposed to put
1: a piece of paper by your bed and write them down. <laughs> Didn't get rid of the anxiety for me. <laughs> you mentioned practices like walking in nature, meditation. I'm wondering, you know, we've all had the experience of, like you mentioned, having too many windows open or uh, catching ourselves mid infinite scroll, five, 10, 15 minutes later you come up with strategies to address our lack of awareness while using certain technologies. Some work, some don't. Can you share those with us? I'm personally a fan of your recommendation to take tech breaks. Yeah,
0: um, I've developed actually a list of a ton of strategies that you can use to help you. I mean, there's there's one that helps you stay away from your, your technology if you're just too much into it. that helps you basically start at... at a break every 15 minutes for a minute or two and then another 15 minutes and another 15 minutes until you handle that. And then upping that to 20, 25, 30 minutes. So you're getting a pure unadulterated, non interrupted, say 30 minutes. I think that's great. If we can go 30 minutes, any of us can go 30 minutes without being interrupted either outside or inside our head. Cause I don't think that's possible, but I've developed strategies for that. I've developed strategies for changing your, your relationship with your social media sites, meaning, Moving those icons from the front screen all the way to other screens, repopulating them anywhere, putting them in folders so they're not identifiable as easily, making you get there in order to, to do it. And maybe as you're scrolling and thinking, you'll feel, oh, I don't really need to go to TikTok right now. I did not really need to go to Facebook. It doesn't matter. Um, I, I've developed a whole slew of strategies, and I've tested them on me- millennials and teens, and none of them work. Now, I won't say that. That's not altogether true. None of the ones we tested work. The one that worked the best was the tech breaks, where you Mm -hmm. start at 15 minutes, give yourself a minute break. That worked the best. The first year we did it uh, for three weeks. They had to pick two strategies out of our laundry list, and they keep them for for three weeks. And what we were looking at was just two pure measures. One, how many times a day they unlock their phone, and how many minutes it stays unlocked. Very simplistic you can do with an app. It's very easy. What we found is that if you look at their time and their unlocks, they're pretty consistent all the way up to when you introduce the strategies, then they go down a little bit, and then the three weeks is done and bam, they shoot back up and shoot overshoot where they were before. Tried six weeks, figured that wasn't enough time, same result. Just amazing to me that no matter what you do, these people still resist it. And the, that's the power of the smartphone.
1: Yeah, I wanna get into the behavioral science and the product development part in a minute. The, you know, what's also interesting is that there are other forces at play as well. There's boredom, for example. Like you you talk about the intersection of boredom and anxiety. And, uh, you know, I find it interesting that you suggest that we've lost the ability to simply do nothing and endure boredom. Can you speak to that? Sure. Well, if you
0: think about it, um, and you've got a phone, and you've got an iPad or a tablet of some sort, um, and a television. There's an infinite number of things to do. When I was growing up, we had five television stations. Maybe I grew up in Los Angeles too. It's like two, four, five, seven, nine, and eleven, and thirteen. Those were our television stations growing up. Well, look at how many television stations we have now. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And there's lots more to watch, and it's all calling at you and it's, it's out there trying to reach out to you to get you to do this, um, the opportunities are just way more. And given that there's an opportunity to do something, what your brain says is do it. And what that means is if your brain sits quiet, trying to live within boredom, um, very, very quickly those ideas are driven into your head of, oh, let's go check the news, or... Maybe I should watch that ball game on there, even though I don't know either of the teams. Uh, Maybe I should watch Sports Center for a while. It just creeps in on you immediately and destroys the ability to be bored. One of the things that's interesting is we started off most of our research studies with this model that said that a combination of your cognitive abilities and particularly your prefrontal cortex abilities and your ability to have anxiety or lack of anxiety about technology, sometimes called nomophobia. Um, Sometimes called FOMO, we kind of clump them all together because they're really anxieties. Those two would predict, say, academic performance or a good night's sleep, but they were much stronger if you put in the middle what are called mediators, which are technology uses. We've tried all of them, and it turns out that the one that's the most important—there's two really most important. One is that if you are anxious and you use more social media. You have a bad night's sleep or a worse night's sleep, or you do poorly in the class or whatever. Um, the two that we found are social media usage and what's called metacognition. And Metacognition is kind of knowing what you know, knowing what's good for you, knowing what's not good for you, knowing what interrupts you. I mean, people with a good metacognition, they're not going to sit in the middle of a baseball game and try to do their homework. They know that there's just too much going on. So, those two turn out to be really important while yes, your poor prefrontal cortex does lead directly to a bad night's sleep or to a poor grade in the class. It's stronger because of social media and metacognition or lack of metacognition
1: and because of all that, you suggest we spend more time thinking, wondering, pondering, zoning out that there that this is actually. A healthy thing to do, you know. That isn't even one of the recommendations
0: that I give because I don't think people can do it. Um, one of the recommendations I do that's close to that is that people should download a meditation app and use it because that's really kind of simulating boredom. You're doing nothing. You're you're staying. You're staying centered with yourself. You're supposed to not be thinking about outside sources and all this. Um, I don't even touch the concept of boredom except to show. But when you add boredom to that model as an combining kind of prefrontal cortex function, tech anxiety, and now boredom, boredom plays a really important role in predicting some things. It, what, what it really predicts is more social media use. The more bored you are, the more social media you use, and then the worse you do in class, the more stress you have, the more poor night's sleep you get, uh, more stress, the more anxiety you show, the more depression you show. Boredom turns out to be a very powerful predictor of all of those, but it's also, of course, interrelated with with the other two. So it's really a a kind of a whammy, triple whammy. There's cognition, the prefrontal cortex, there's anxiety, the nomophobia, um, FOMO, and then there's boredom, which is kind of both a cognitive and an affective variable. It's both cognitive in that you're bored from thinking about things, and it's affective in that it affects your body. It affects you emotionally.
1: And you also speak briefly to how, you know, boredom potentially is anxiety about the absence of meaning in a person's activities. Do you recommend that people who are experiencing boredom and anxiety in the way that you're referring to it, uh, perform an honest look at what they're doing in the moment, whether or not what they're doing has meaning or the ways in which that they can channel their creative faculties towards something that's meaningful. That's so difficult. Yeah.
0: I mean, yes, in, in a just world, we would want to do that in a fair world. We want to do that. I'll tell you flat out. It doesn't work. And I'll tell you what's really funny is you were asking me the question. I missed the first two sentences of your question because my phone in my pocket beeped twice. And what I did Physically, I went. Well, we're not on the screen. I'm going to reach down and look at my phone. I went. No, you're not, because you (laughs) got to go listen to Derek because he just asked you a question. (laughs) But that's how hard it is. I mean, it's hard to suppress that. Yeah, it's like it was even in me. It was a natural reaction. Even if I turn my phone off and I stick it over here, the natural reaction is to turn it over to see if any notifications came in or any text came in. And it's it's insane. It yeah, really so, is. so we co- really
1: are Pavlov's dog and we are oh. conditioned conditioned. And so let's just let's go let's go there then. You know, you mentioned earlier you're shocked I think or you're surprised at how quickly some of these technologies have evolved, social media in particular. If you're doing product development, well, as an organization you're constantly running experiments and you're constantly iterating and pushing out new versions based on, you know, what's performing better. You mentioned in one of your interviews that you would like to see a code in terms of how behavioral science is leveraged with respect to product development. And have you thought about at all what that code would look like and how, how you'd want it to see it implemented? Sure, so let me back up and answer the first, what was implied in the
0: first part, um, which is that technology companies, app developers, uh, website developers, whatever it is, um, their goal, their business model is to get your eyeballs there and keep them there as long as you can. So they hire behavioral scientists, like you said, to figure out what will get their eyeballs there and then figure out once they're there, what will keep them there. We know some of the things that work too. We know that a, an icon that stands out that, that you see when you first open your, your screen is going to drag you there. That's why companies often change their icons to try to get them more eye grabbing. Um, we know that. Um, that once you get there, that they're going to do things to keep you there. And primarily, they're going to gamify what you're doing. They, they love gamifying it and Snapchat streaks, Words with Friends streaks. Uh, what else was I on the other day that they said, oh, I'm, I'm reading books in the, from the library. I'm downloading books from my library, and it, to, it keeps telling me I'm in the streak. I've read X number of days in a row. And a part of me wants to know why, and who cares. <laughs> but I realize what they're trying to get me to do is to get some more books,
1: Right. Wow, even so, the even the public library. God is on to it. But then
0: the pr- the problem is, is that once they get your eyeballs there, they want to keep them there. And there's lots of ways to do this, obviously, because again, it's part of their business model. And behavioral scientists by and large are pretty smart at doing this stuff because it's not really rocket science. It's behavior modification. Mm-hmm. It's punishment, it's reinforcement. That's all it is, quite honestly. That's that is it. And so they apply those techniques to get you there and keep you there. And there's some great books that talk about this. Um, one's written by Nir Eyal, N-I-R-E-Y-A-L. Hooked. And the other's written by Tim Wu, W-O-O. Um, they're both really good. One's called The Attention Merchants. I think that's Tim's. Um, that's what they are, Attention Merchants. Mm-hmm. So from my point of view, what I try to tell people, and it doesn't work almost all the time, but what I try to tell people is you've got to recognize the games they're playing. And understand what they're doing to you. So the fact that the people can't do it, I really think that it's the responsibility of the tech companies to say, okay, here's all the things that we did. Here's the tools that we we use to get you there. We're not trying to harm you. These are just tools to get you to our website and to keep you there. I really think there should be some transparency. I mean, there's not, because it goes against their business model.
1: Yeah, and kind of sadly and depressingly so, I mean, the number of ways that you've already referred to in this conversation things that are, or tactics that are ideal or just wouldn't help, even though in an ideal world, that's what one should do. I suspect even if that information was published, people wouldn't read it. Or if they did start to read it, maybe they would only get a certain way through it. Or
0: or they say, that's not me. I don't do any of those things. Right. Because a lo- I, I'm,
1: I'm not subject to
0: right, that kind right. And of a lot of that stuff is not, I won't say the subconscious level, but a lot of that stuff is working without you really consciously thinking about it. I mean, nobody consciously thinks about when they go online on social media, any social media site, that there's an infinite scroll. They just keep scrolling. They don't go, I'm wasting my time. Why don't they do that on Google when they're searching for Google? Why don't they just keep scrolling page to page? Because Google does a really good job of putting the most important stuff on the front page. You don't need to go any further. Google's one. You'll go back there the next time. And I don't know if Google still has it, but there used to be an I'm lucky button.
1: Mm, feeling, take take, me, to, like take me
0: to the place yeah. that you think is the one, exact one I want. Yeah, I thought, That's pretty ballsy of them.
1: And what role is the subconscious playing?
0: Our subconscious keeps track of what we're doing. It's part of its job and it's spread all over our brain. And it wants us to keep doing what we're doing. It wants us not to get distracted. It wants us to be able to do it. So it tries to point us in that direction, but it doesn't work doesn't work and part of it is because there's so much junk under that conscious level. And there's the anxiety, there's the pleasure, there's there's all this biochemical stuff, and then there's all this behavioral stuff going on. You add biochemical stuff, neurological
1: stuff, behavioral stuff, you got a triple whammy. Do you ever think about the intersection of control and anxiety? <laughs>
0: It's funny, funny you asked that. I was just talking to my sister um, who lives in Portland, and she, she um, my mother lives up there too. My sister has started taking over jobs for my mother who's ninety three, um, slowly but surely. And um, the last one she wanted to take over and it was very difficult one was my mother's checkbook because my mother writes checks. But we found out that she's been writing multiple checks to the same bill and not you know not really doing a good job. So my sister's taking over her bank book. Then my mom asks, well, Judy, you know, I do need some cash. And my sister's thinking, "Oh, all right, she probably needs some cash. Well, you know, maybe a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. My mom said, I need $25. Now, why does she say that? Because it gives her a modicum of control. And for my mother, who's got anxiety disorder, it keeps the anxiety down. Yeah. Same On the same level, my mother needs to put eye drops in her nine times a day. She has her phone dinging nine times a day. So she feels in control. So there's no anxiety. Like, Oh, I missed the last one. How did I forget that? You don't have to worry about it. It dings and reminds you. So control and anxiety are partners.
1: Mm-hmm. I was thinking you'd say that. It seems like we prop up the illusion of control to manage this ever present background signal of, of some sort of archaic anxiety. Yeah. And I
0: think that we're, we're finding that we're fading fast on that issue of control mm-hmm. that, If you start looking at what's going on, um, people have very little control, and a lot of it's due to anxiety, stress, yeah, and and overload. Bottom line, overload. There's just too much stuff out there. I mean, five thousand television stations. I'll tell you, it drives us crazy when people say, "Well, have you watched such and such a show?" No. What's it on? We've got that. It'll have to go in line past the nine thousand shows that everybody wants us to watch, which we aren't going to watch.
1: It's interesting, in your book, you refer to people who think they are very effective at multitasking, actually, in fact, are are not good at multitasking.
0: That is true. true. In fact, they're often the worst at multitasking. They're just delusional that they think they can do it all. I shouldn't say this out loud, but my wife and I were talking last night, and uh, she always multitasks when we're watching TV, but she says she's got it down. She plays spades or words with friends or something intellectual watches watching TV, what she doesn't understand is she asked me oftentimes, what do they just say? Last night we were talking about something else that was going on. Oh, she she wanted to look at something on, on another device. And she said, you know what? I can multitask with two devices, but I can't do it with three. And I laughed and I said, you don't realize you can't do it with two either. You're just not being effective. But she thinks she's a good multitasker, but she's not retaining the information.
1: Yeah, that's interesting you refer to uh, the concept of the resumption lag, like the right. time that it takes to actually resume the task. From yeah, which...
0: and it's, most of this research has been in the business world because I think that's where it's really important. Um, and what they found, and particularly um, Gloria Mark at UC Irvine has done a lot of this research, um, what, what she's found is that when you get interrupted, when you get distracted, that it can take upwards of 20 or more minutes to get back to it. And 20 seems to be about the norm. It's not, oftentimes I hear people say up to, and that means, oh, that's the highest. This is not the case. It's up to because it gets that high as 20, 30 minutes. And you imagine, now imagine that you're working on a project in your computer and you get distracted. Somebody pops you an instant message. You go back and forth talking about something else. You get back 15 minutes later to, after you check your email and do everything else that you need to do, come back to your project and you have no idea where you left off. Or what you were going to say, unless you have perfect notes or a perfect memory.
1: Have you seen businesses implementing some types of support or guidance to their teams on this particular topic?
0: <laughs> their support and guidance is take as long as you want to get the tasks done, we'll pay you for eight hours. Mm. And this is why, by the way, that people work on their phones um, often into the night. Mm-hmm. Or first thing in the morning,
1: yeah, we have um, different teams on our team uh, use different versions of uh, you know for this hour we're just going to work on our projects and we're not going to be interrupted, for example, so I was curious to to hear if um, you've either worked with companies or heard of companies implementing strategies like that.
0: not really, unfortunately okay. I mean there are <laughs> there are some cute ones I mean. One company came up with this with this thing called um, a, a button, a work button, and it's just a disk on your desk, and when it's red, you're not to be interrupted. When it's green, you can be interrupted. The problem is, is that doesn't count any of the people who interrupt you on your screen. It's only the people coming around your cubicle who are going to interrupt you. Right, yeah. It have, doesn't work. You have Slack um, blowing up. And that's, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What can I say? I mean, this is all this stuff, by the way, is, um, uh, first of all, you have to understand that I am the most optimistic person in the world. I always see things as a plus, as a good thing. My wife says that we go to a party, she can tell how many conversations I'll have by counting the number of people there. Because I talk to everybody, I can find something interesting from people, it's fun. This is one area where I'm just, I want to say confused, along with um, disappointed, and yet I, d- I do understand that it's, the, it's not in our
1: control anymore. Disappointed in how certain companies are leveraging these aspects of human psychology to their benefit or disappointed in simply the human condition and its inability to sufficiently manage this onslaught Is there a of C that says
0: all of the above? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what it would be is all of the above. But mostly, I mean, I can't be disappointed in, in people. People just do what they're going to do. I mean, they have the right, they have free will, they can do what they're going to do. I'm disappointed that people in the world don't take this more seriously and see the ramifications. Mm. And then, of course, we've talked before, I'm disappointed in the tech companies just because their, their goal is to make it worse.
1: You know, I'm getting the sense that you see the f- current situation in the future as rather bleak. Is that? Yes. I, I, well, part of it is data-driven.
0: I mean, I'm a very data-driven scientist. Um, and the data show that it's getting worse before getting better. Um, I understand why it's getting worse because all of our research points to why it's getting worse. Will it get better Um, I'm not very optimistic that it's going to get better anytime soon. And part of the reason for that is that it's just an explosion of options. When we talked about television, we talked about your smartphone, we talked about your iPad, we talked about everything in the news, whatever whatever your poison is, mine's email in general, but whatever your poison is, it's like those things just keep competing for resources. And as long as there's more and more of that, competing for resources, we're going to have to work harder. So one of the interesting things that we've been doing started in 2016, put put an app on everybody's phone in my class. So I had like 400 people put an app on their phone. And the app monitored how many times they unlocked their phone each day and how many minutes they spent there. Very simple. Um, and they would send it to us uh, weekly so we could keep track of what was going on. Imagine the nightmare of all those data. Uh, what we found the first time we did it which was in 2016, that and 2017, really about the same, that people were unlocking their phone about 50 times a day for about a little shy of four hours a day. A little shy. Um, We thought that's pretty horrendous, 50 times a day when you're checking your phone. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. Checking your phone means you turn it off and you open it up again, whether you have a password or not. Actually, for these to work, you have to have a password. So... You open it up, put in your password, that counts as one. Um, after 2017, it went crazy. And we started studying in 2017, and then 18 and 19 and 20, we we're studying both teenagers and millennials. It hopped very quickly from 50 times a day to 75 times a day, and from 220, 230 minutes a day to 300 minutes a day. That's a magically large leap. Yeah. And I was just reading, again, I was just reading today that you can add on about 50% of that um, to what we're seeing because of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So, gosh, I'm trying to, to channel my sadness into thinking <laughs> <laughs> the trajectory of what this means. And I mean, it certainly makes me feel better for uh, producing a service like ours that provides uh, practices like meditation and and, and right. other contemplative practices that that help um, strengthen some of these faculties, like the the, the ability to to attend to certain uh, stimuli versus others, and so that gives me some hope.
0: Well, and I think that part of I mean I, I'm I'm the eternal optimist. I really believe that everybody will figure this out at some point. But I'm not such an optimist when it comes to the businesses letting up. Um, I mean, we've seen we've seen Facebook being targeted for years, and Google and Amazon, and yet we still order most of our stuff from Amazon. We still use Google to to search for information. We still use everything we can use, and the more that's there to use, the more stress you're going to feel needing to use it. And that's that's what makes me kind of feel a little bit on the negative side here, a little bit pessimistic is that I just see those numbers going up and up and up. And you can't have a well-balanced life if you are spending almost every waking hour using some form of screen. You just can't have it. I mean, yes, you may think that you're talking to your friends on on Skype or you're talking to your friends on Zoom or whatever, but that's not communication. That's connection. Communication is when you're together together or you're able to get more and more of those connection cues and feel like you're actually transmitting good, good information back and forth. Um, One of the nice things for me that's come out of this pandemic is that I've rediscovered some friends um, that I've had for decades and decades and decades. And um, with one of them, we've scheduled an every week happy hour on Saturdays at four o'clock we get together, we share a drink and we talk about feelings. Otherwise, uh, you're not talking about anything. I mean, and I've tried to do this with a bunch of people, some works with, some just wanna talk about their day, their week, whatever. But truly communicating is talking about your feelings, you're talking about the context you're in, you're talking about what's going on with you, how it makes you feel, what you need to learn to deal with it all. Um, That's so, so intensive that it's easier just to connect. It's easier just to send a quick text message
1: you mentioned in your book that some people think that doing a tech detox whether that be a day or a week or whatever time period uh, one might uh, separate oneself from technology uh, the thought being that that would then uh, create some sort of um, restoration of whatever is out of whack uh, and that ultimately that, that would would accrue to some sort of benefit you're saying that doesn't actually work and why is that
0: no it just creates anxiety. I mean, one of my One of my favorite things. There used to be a, a place called Camp Grounded. Um, I think the, the guy who was running it passed away, but they ta- he'd take you to the mountains, have all your all your technology either not brought with you or put away in a safe someplace, and he had typewriters up there and art projects to do and things like that. Um, and I argued with him every time I saw him at a conference, which we'd talk and I'd say, "So, so is it working?" And he goes, well, we're not really collecting data on that.
1: Define working. Goes,
0: well, but they didn't want to know if it's working. Yeah. And and the answer is no. I mean, I used to, I used to um, have a little cabin in the mountains in California when, I, when my kids were younger and we'd take them up there and ski and do stuff like that. I don't ski. I fall. Um, <laughs> but we got terrible reception up the mountains and, Um, So essentially, unless I went into town next to the Walmart where they had some sort of reception, I couldn't get reception. Or there was one place I could walk across the street behind a certain tree that got me a little bit of reception, one bar. So basically, I had to detox the whole time we were there. Um, I did not like it. And this was a long time ago. I did not like it because I felt like the world was passing me by. I must be missing something really important. Um, And... the the bottom line is, is that it's just not going well. (laughs) I mean, and and I I wish, I wish I could say that our trend was kind of going up and that we were getting better at this, but I think our trend is actually going down about the same amount as I would like it to go up. Um, And part of that is when did TikTok start? A year or two ago. I mean, Pokemon Go took 35 days to reach the magic 50 million people that, that you talk about as penetrating society. 35 days. Instagram, about the same. Um, how do you fight that? How do you fight that? I mean, they're putting out a great product whose goal is to get you there. Yeah. How do you fight that? How do you, as a human being, how do you fight that? Close your eyes, not pay any attention, put, you know, do, do the Tommy routine, put your earplugs in, put your eye shades on. I don't know if that's too old a to reference, but.
1: Yeah, I I mean, for myself specifically, and I know I'm not a a representative sample by a long shot, I need to structure my day to say like, I'm going to now do this particular task. I'm going to turn off whatever it is that might interrupt me and only like you do only leave open channels, uh, for, uh, either people or information sources that I, I need to make sure are that I'm constantly accessible for certain um, either people or situations. Uh, Otherwise, for me, it's too much. Like I need to compartmentalize and to make that decision. Okay, now I'm attending to this and I'm not attending to all of that.
0: Yeah, and part of of what's interesting is people think, well, you can detox somebody from video games. Shouldn't be a problem. I mean, yeah, they play a lot, but you should be able to detox them. Well, there are, dozens of clinics in South Korea, for example, that take pe- people in who are addicted or the family says they're addicted to video games and spend a lot of time getting them unaddicted. It's not just a day or two like a cook detox. It's, it's a long time. And then there's a program run by Hillary Cash up in Washington State um, called Restart. And Hillary and her team take in about 10, 12 people at a time, mostly younger people who are addicted to video games, and their program is months and months and months because they don't believe and they know from data that if you just do it quickly, not going to work.
1: Just reinforces the power of the bottom-up processing the information that's, that's coming to us through these very ancient brain structures that served a purpose long ago but are in fact limited. Well, you have to
0: also understand that the bottom-up part is still bottoming up bringing up very rich information. I mean, most of, most of the stuff that's out there appeals to all of our senses and tries to, to like hit us down in the bottom so that we pull it up because we think, oh, well, it's setting off my video, it's setting off my audio, it's setting up all this stuff. And we're not to blame for that as much, I don't think. I, I just don't think as humans we're prepared to make this fight
1: So in December 2019, you wrote an article for Psychology Today. It's titled, The Scientist Grapples with Parkinson's Disease. And then you posted a follow-up article a year later. And my dad was recently diagnosed with Parkinsonism. Uh, he'll have the DAT scan and other follow-ups to confirm exactly what's going on. Uh, but he read your articles and shared with me that reading them was very helpful for him. And he experiences many of the symptoms that you list. And I'm curious as someone who has spent his professional life studying some of the faculties that are impacted by Parkinson's, I suspect you're in a unique position to to process and understand your experience. Where are you in the processing of the changes that you're experiencing? And is there anything that stands out in terms of your learning that might help people like my dad and, their support networks that are around them, like people like me?
0: So number one, quite honestly, is the power of medication. Um, When I went to see, um, when I went to be diagnosed, um, my left hand and the left side of my body was tremoring. Not hugely, but it was tremoring. Um, The doctor prescribed uh, Levodopa, which is a long used thing, but now it's used with carbidopa for other reasons, but it's a combination. And the first dosage didn't work, and the second dosage didn't work. So now we're up to a third dosage, and it works, um, except for small parts uh, of a contact lens that I have to put in one day, one time a day, and or take out. Um, and my hands shake so much; it's really hard to get it centered on my eyeball. Um, mm. And that's because there's kind of minor tremors. Um, but the part that I've been tracking more. Since I don't have to worry about the tremors, I can worry about other stuff. The part that I've been tracking more is the cognitive issues. Um, where is my brain going? How is my brain learning to process this? And um, uh, I'm, yeah, I guess I'd have to say I'm in the process of doing this. Um, on good days, I think I'm doing great. On bad days, I can't remember somebody's name that I just met five seconds ago. I can't remember an actor's name whose movies I've seen 25,000 times. Um, I mean, it's no, I know it's there. And I know I can do crossword puzzles and it'll show up. I, mean, I do a lot of New York Times crossword puzzles and I know it'll show up if I need it. Oftentimes I need a letter or two to get myself there. I, and as a, as a scientist, I'm watching this kind of get worse. It started off, you know, not so bad. I couldn't remember a few names. And then a little more, and then a little more, and then. the problem is, of course, how do you disentangle this from just aging? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of those things, I you know, tell people my age, they'll say, ah, it's just natural aging; it's just not a big deal. But there are other there are other things that also play into this. And the one that actually it's funny, the one that irks me the most, and the one that worries me the most, is typing. Mm-hmm. I took touch typing in seventh grade in school, <laughs> and became a really good touch typist. I could type. 50, 75 words a minute, um, albeit with a bunch of errors. But, and, and as you know, as, a, as an author, I mean, I've written seven books. I learned how to type along the way. And I think through my fingers. I know people don't understand that, but I think through my fingers. Somebody said, Why don't you just record voice record it? Nope, that's not the same. It won't work for me. So I put my fingers on the keys and if I'm not looking, I'll look back up and they'll be all wrong because I've shifted over my hand or my left hand is too slow, mm. which is most common. My left hand is slower than my right, which makes it very difficult. Obviously, I have to, so I have to slow my right down in order to do it. And then I find myself just making mistakes, correcting them, correcting them, correcting them. I'm making probably three mistakes a sentence, which as a as a Parkinson's patient worries the shit out of me. Can I say that word?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay,
0: good, good. Um, but as a, as a scientist, I find it fascinating. I mean, and I yes, I had my DAT scan, and the whole purpose of a DAT scan is to tell how much dopamine you have in your system. Um, mine was very limited. I mean, the DAT scan is supposed to show two big kind of orange-red circles with that look like downward commas facing each other. I had the two circles, but no downward comma. Um, so clearly lacking in dopamine. Um, And people think of dopamine as the pleasure chemical, but but it also controls your body movements um, and a lot of other things. That's why dopamine and and Parkinson's are intricately linked, because what happens to Parkinson's patients is they lose their sense of balance a lot. And Parkinson's, when you read in in the paper that someone died of Parkinson's, that's not true. What they died of is falling and the ramifications of falling or getting pneumonia or some other some other cause, but Parkinson's itself will kill you. It'll just lead to other things. And particularly if you think about, in my case, my left side is pretty weak. Um, I can stand on my left foot for about two seconds, um, like a stork. And then I have to hold on to something. I can stand on my right foot. I'm standing on my right foot now. Um, I can stand on my right foot forever. Um, and it doesn't, but my left foot is, just doesn't work as well. And, So all of these kind of combination of cognitive things really kind of dig deep into me. And part of it is as a scientist. And one of my goals in writing that was to try to explain to people the things to look out for. And not that you can overcome it, but you can increase your awareness of it. And I think once you're aware of the ramifications of this, there's some things you can do.
1: Like what, for example?
0: Well, one of the, one of the things that, um, that um, Parkinson's has, which, again, I didn't know because there's so many symptoms and subsymptoms, is that you, you have this thing called REM behavior disorder. What that means is that as you're sleeping and you're in REM sleep, you know, we have dreams and all these dreams, so we don't move around. And maybe we talk a little bit. It's very soft. Uh, maybe we move our fingers a little. In, in REM behavioral disorder, you move your body, start striking out. And you may even, at the ex- exceptional ends, sleepwalk. Um, my wife told me uh, a couple weeks ago that, um, yeah, I was socking the air in my sleep mm. and fighting somebody and yelling at somebody, and my voice came through. I talked to my neurologist, and she said, you know, this is going to sound silly, but why don't you take this melatonin pill 30 minutes before you go to bed? That should help. And sure enough, it did. So there are cures for some of these things. Um, and there are ways to deal with them. But I think as a scientist, my job is to point out the ways. But also, I'm, I'm doing a lot of mentoring with people. I'm in a small support group of five of us um, who talk once a week about our Parkinson's. We're all older, talk about, you know, what's coming up, what we should be looking for, how we should be doing it, um, whether we should, you know, some of the newest research, should we be exercising more, should be doing this kind of exercise. Um, so th- I, I really feel like mentoring on my side is really important, too. Be able to talk to people. I mean, I'm a scientist. And the stuff you read about Parkinson's is deep science. I mean, it's brain stimulation and and all sorts of other kinds of stuff, which I actually know and understand. And I'd say the normal Parkinson's patient probably has no clue. And so I'm trying to put it in easily digestible language. And I I think if your father felt that, that it was good for him, I think it might be successful.
1: I would agree with that. Yes, helped him feel a little less alone. Thank you. Has this experience changed how you think about brain health and how you treat your brain?
0: Yes, it has. Um, I'm much more conscious of what I put in my body. Um, as I mean, I'm, I'm a carnivore. <laughs> I like meat. Uh, I like food. I'm I'm a good cook. I'm I'm not a great cook. My son's. Are great cooks. I'm a terrible, not a terrible cook, but I'm a utilitarian cook. But um, I've changed my diet. I've, unlike people who have the COVID-10 where they've gained 10 pounds, I've lost 19. Um, I've, I've intentionally changed the way I eat because one of the things that Parkinson, Parkinson's patients and research will tell you is the better your health is, your physical health, and the more you exercise that physical health. Um, the better uh, you will deal with your Parkinson's. So I've also uh, you know, lost the ability to be, walk, to be a walker. I used to be a runner and walking seems boring to me. But once this started, I decided I was just going to take my dog out every single day or as often as possible. And we're going to walk a long way um, and up and down hills and it'll help me. And I've been doing that, you yeah, know, for probably most of the pandemic, three to five times a week on a good week,
1: and it really helps. And what's the really long does. way? What's the uh, time I think duration? we
0: walk fifty minutes, about two and a half miles, something like that.
1: And what about your um, diet? Have you changed?
0: Um, we we eat maybe once a week. Um, we eat only healthy stuff. Um, I we live on chicken and fish basically. Um, always have a salad with every dinner. Uh, I call it my 19 vegetable salad. It's always got vegetables chopped up in fruit and whatever. Um, we always have steamed vegetables or barbecue vegetables or whatever, some sort of vegetables. Um, and I only allow myself to have very light desserts. There's no more of this, if there's chocolate in the house, I'm going to eat it all because that's, that, that's what we will do. I have to hide chocolate from both my wife and I and forget where I hit it. And then a couple of months later, I come across it and go, oh, yeah, let's put it back there. Um, but yeah, but I also started on this diet called the 816, which I don't really recommend um, as a diet because I don't know what the data show. But it's basically you eat for eight hours, anything you want, and then fast for 16. Um, and that works. I mean, I have my, my dessert around 9 o'clock at night, and then I don't eat until the next afternoon, so the next lo- noontime, basically.
1: So some form of intermittent fasting.
0: Yeah, I mean and I don't really keep it rigid. I mean if I if I fast for 13 hours or 12 hours one day and 15 another day, it's not going to make a big difference. I just try to purposely make our lives at least geared toward being healthier. Um, nice. You know, best I can do.
1: Yeah, I mean that's great advice for anyone at any age. And yeah, addition- I do
0: not like being being overweight. <laughs> Yeah. however i have not knocked out the one as i'm cooking afternoon tequila
1: that's still in my diet the in addition to the carbidopa levodopa is there anything else that you're taking any supplements that you have found helpful um,
0: nothing in particular i've always taken folic acid which is supposed to help your memory but i've take, been taking that for years and years and years i've tried to add in other kind of herbs and things um I mean, I tried this this company over in South Africa had something that they were pushing. I tried three months worth, and it did nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm much less into kind of uh, supplements than than many of my generation are. Um, I think in terms of supplements, I take two maybe a day, um, and that's really it. How, how about
1: vitamins?
0: Uh, you know. I don't take multivitamins. I never have in my life, um, and the reason is is because the way we eat, mm-hmm. we get all the vitamins we need. Um, quite honestly, we get them all. Are there certain biomarkers you're tracking, like homocysteine? Yeah. Or- I, t- I check. I don't track biomarkers, but I check daily steps.
1: Okay.
0: Um, I weigh myself once every week or two, so I don't have to deal with the momentary fluctuations. Um, I know people weigh, weigh themselves every day and then they starve the next day if it's up two pounds or one pound. Um, I go to my doctor, my internist uh, twice a year and have all my blood work done twice a year just to make sure everything's in, in step. Um, so those are kind of biomarkers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it's not in
1: step, uh, we have a plan. And if this is too personal, Please stop me. Last question. Uh, w- was there anything out of step that correlates with Parkinson's that you brought back into step?
0: Um, can you give me an example? Of what what you're like talking about? Like you said, mentioned... if
1: anything is ever ever out of step, we address that. So was there something that was out of step that correlates to the condition?
0: Out of step in what way? I mean, I, I can take it in a broad way, I can take it in a lot of different ways. I think- give me, an, I could, give me an example of something that might feel out of step.
1: Well, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought you said a moment ago that when I visit my doctor, we we, we check for certain things. And if anything's out of step, we correct for that. Uh,
0: okay. didn't understand that was in terms. Of, yes. Yes, we do. Um, I monitor them all very carefully. I mean, and I make them give me the full panel and everything and my calcium and, and anything and everything. And I do monitor them very closely. Um, And if something's not exactly right, um, I will ask him. And if he doesn't know, he'll research it for me, which is nice. Um, And I'll research for myself. You know, that's one of the Google things. Only on certain websites, though. Um, Right, yeah. Maybe WebMD and then all the the government ones. Um,
1: At the time of your diagnosis, was there anything specific out of step that you thought that because it's out of step, it increased the likelihood for the onset of Parkinson's? I had
0: no warning whatsoever other than tremors. Okay. And in fact, I mean, what, what I wrote in the article is the first time I had two doctors. One diagnosed it, and I went, nope, you're wrong. You're wrong. I don't believe you. I'm going to get a second opinion. Second opinion says, you've got Parkinson's. <laughs> she was right. The other person was right. Um, and a part of that is just continuing to approach it. Um, in an open way, I'm mean, going to try to be open in terms of my own feelings about it, which I share a lot in those blogs and my own um, kind of journey through it, because most people don't know anything's wrong until their hand starts tremoring a little and they don't have any idea. And I used to do this this uh, little test for people. What I, I would say is, now, you, I, I know, you have, you know I have Parkinson's, and, but you don't believe it because I'm, I'm perfectly fine. Said so now, hold your finger out in front of you, and I'll take my right hand and touch it. And I can touch it with my right hand perfectly. No, now hold your finger out there in a different place, and I'm going to try to do it with my left hand. My left hand zigs and zags, or didn't all the way there, and I couldn't control it. And I said, "That's Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. When you lack, you have a lack of control. It's like your body's out of control. I'm a very in-control person. I don't like to be out of control, but it was kind of awakening for me to see." I could be out of control mm-hmm. and I could think through it clearly. I could accept it. I, I, I'm pretty accepting of anything mean, that's not going to bother me.
1: And how wonderful that you have that support network where you can s- uh, disclose in very vulnerable ways your, your feelings about what you're going through and right. um, with others. Well, Dr. Rosen, thank you so much. This was a lovely conversation and I'm, I'm grateful and honored to have spent this time with you.
0: Thanks. I thought it was very informative for me too. You've given me some things to go back and think about in terms of potentially generating some new research. So thank you. That was really fun, by the
1: way. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members, You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you The Glow Podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support, and the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, apple podcasts or glo.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your podcasts i'm derek mills